1: It's my pleasure on this anniversary of my fifth year hosting PIS Declassified to welcome one of my most popular guests, Lester Rosen. He's going to talk about what every private investigator needs to know about laws governing pre-employment screening. And also, I want to say that this episode is just a compressed version of a webinar that the California Association of Licensed Investigators is offering to CALI members on August 26th. There is some discussion about um, offering it also to non-members. Members for a small fee, but uh, at uh, this point yeah. it's offered only to Cali members. So if you're interested in that, log into the Cali website at www.cali-pi.org for details. And while I'm at it, don't forget to check into the Digital Forensic Conference at the University of California, Santa Barbara University, uh, August 6th through the 8th. So employers talking about today's topic. Employers certainly want to know all they can about the people they're hiring, particularly if they're handling company assets. It's such a vital aspect to choosing just the right person for the job. Pre-employment screening. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Just, well, just... It, it's uh, a well, um,
2: pleasure to be here with you once again. Uh, and yes, it's one of those things that sounds so simple, but when you get down into it, Um, I can tell you, for example, I wrote a 700-plus page book just on that one topic, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) Right. It's hard to imagine how complicated this gets.
1: It is. And as long as you mention the book, uh, Les, why don't you go ahead and give the name of it, and people might be interested in getting a hold of that book.
2: Oh, sure. It's called The Safe Hiring Manual, uh, subtitled The Complete Guide. To employment screening background checks for employers recruiters and job seekers so uh, basically you can find it really quickly on amazon under the safe hiring manual written primarily for uh hiring managers human resources and employers but also a lot of information for background screeners and investigators and it covers a whole variety of topics and when people read it they uh, scratch their head they get through a page or two before it puts them to sleep and it really is just the tip of the iceberg. It's a massive topic because background screening occurs at the intersection of a lot of things that happen in society. Uh, safety and security and due diligence at the same time, giving people a second chance, the proper use of criminal records, accurate criminal records, discrimination, EEOC, the Americans with Disabilities Act, it, it's, it's all in there, it's all bundled in there, and it's a real sensitive topic. It has well, to do with, the, with people being safer and people earning a living.
1: It's a great book, uh, Les. I've read it, and it's just—it's really a step-by-step tutorial of how you can do just about anything to do with pre-employment or post-employment screening, for that matter. Um, But, you know, Les, um, not many people know what your background is. I know that you started out in life after law school as a uh, deputy district attorney.
2: Uh, I did, and that, I did, and I spent a number of years specializing in drug, sex, and murder, I mean not personally, of course, <laughs> but just professionally um, and in discouraging people from doing those things when they shouldn't oh, and course. then I spent a number of additional years as a uh, criminal defense attorney uh doing all sorts of criminal cases. My specialty was complex uh long criminal trials, death penalty murder cases uh federal uh, uh, federal conspiracy charges, you know jury trials that would go six eight ten, twelve months and um so ha- it was have a lot of, of background and experience on on that side of the side of the spectrum
1: and you jumped from criminal defense to uh pre employment screening. How did that happen
2: well I, I i decided to retire from criminal law and uh at some point in my career. And quite frankly, uh, my, my wife told me we're married for better, for worse, but not for lunch, so I needed a hobby. <laughs> and uh, this was some years ago in the background screening industry. Uh, I, I made the classic mistake, how hard can it be? <laughs> Boy, did I find out. And so combining my interest in criminal law and uh, uh, computers and investigation, I uh, got involved in the background screening industry. And it has been quite an adventure. I was one of the first attorneys, I think, in that, in that industry. So I did a lot of writing. I was uh, ended up uh, chairing the efforts to begin what is now the National Association of Trade Association for the Background Screening Industry, the National Association of Professional Background Screeners, NAPBS.com. I was the chair of the steering committee that started it, and the first chair in the organization. That's really the voice of the background screening industry in terms of best practices, in terms of, of lobbying Congress and, and state legislatures on laws about background screening. So right. it's, been, it's been quite a, an interesting endeavor. And the background screening industry, of course, has grown to become, uh, some people estimate it, as a $3 billion industry. Really? So a lot of time, money, and effort is spent by firms uh, investing. their uh, One of the most important things they do which is hiring people. Most, most of a firm's budget, at least for most firms, the largest amount of money they spend on anything is typically on people. Uh, it's either their first or second expense. And so, obviously, uh, if you hire the wrong people, you are guaranteeing problems. And our philosophy is you can avoid employee problems by not hiring problem employees. Hey, it sounds simple. And it that's what background simple. screening does.
1: It sounds so simple. And yet, the employer and the employer has a responsibility to not only um, protect their company, but to pr- protect their employees. So, negative well, hiring it, it, also comes into the mix.
2: Oh, exactly. And that's one of the problems that employers have. That an employer hires someone that they either knew or reasonably should have known was unfit, and dangerous, unqualified, or dishonest. Uh, and that person comes on the premise and they do something untoward. It could be anything. It could harm somebody or Co-worker, or a member of the public, we I've seen I've been an expert in cases where people have been killed in their homes, child molestation, mm-hmm. uh, a theft of trade secrets, or breaches, uh, you you name it, all from bad hiring decisions, and um, you know employers are held responsible for that um, uh, if they did not undertake some reasonable measures to uh, uh, try to exercise due diligence when they hire. I mean, it's not that everyone hires perfectly. If everyone hired perfectly. You, the government would have never hired John Snowden or the nail yard shooter wouldn't have been hired. So even right. the government can't get it right all the time. Right, right. But employers have a duty to at least make a, uh, to exercise due diligence, which is a reasonable effort, uh, to try and keep the workplace safe. But the other problem, Francie, the real problem now for employers is this catch 22. Not only can you be sued by any number of people if you hire the wrong person, but now you can also be sued, uh, increasingly. Uh, by applicants if you if the process you use is not uh, correct. If you don't dot every I, across every T,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you can be sued for violation of a federal law called the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FCRA, which is the ruling legislation in this area, and also been a lot of activity in the area of ban the box, accuracy of criminal records. Uh, mm-hmm. The EEOC uh, guidance of 2012 talking about the fair use and non-discriminatory use of criminal records. So employers uh, are, are really entering a landmine here, as are background screeners and private investigators, uh, that you have to tiptoe just right, because if you veer off on either side, someone's going to sue you. Um, and Absolutely. so that, that's the world we live
1: in. Well, let's go back, less and, and define some of these terms. So the Fair Credit Reporting Act is such a, a misnamed thing for, for pre-employment screening. Tell, tell us what that actually means for pre-employment screening.
2: Right. So the, the primary federal law is called the FCRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, and it was substantially revised to apply uh, uh, with much more force to employers at, uh, starting in 1997. And basically what that law does is regulate the whole process by which employers engage a third-party firm, a background firm. The fancy legal name for a background firm is a consumer reporting agency. And any time a background firm, which also includes a private investigator, by the way, is very important right. for the PIs to understand there's, there's no PI exception to the FCRA. Mm-hmm. If you are doing an employment background check, you are a consumer reporting agency uh, subject to every rule that um, the credit bureaus and every background firm are subject to. So the FCRA regulates in in excruciating detail uh, the the permissible purpose, how you can run it, what can be in the report, uh, the disclosures and and consent forms that need to be signed, uh, a process called adverse action notice where a consumer can say, hey, this isn't right, uh, the consumer's right. So it regulates all of the players. The, the person who performs the background, the person, the employer who uses it, the consumer who's the subject of the background report, as well as people who furnish information. Those are the four main players. And, and what we're seeing very interestingly is the rise, particularly in the last couple of years, of a group of really talented, sharp, uh, well-versed lawyers who know the FCRA inside or out. And they are on the hunt uh, for background firms and employers who are not dotting every I and crossing every T. And we have seen a literal explosion in class action lawsuits alleging violation of the FCRA. And that is one of the big differences over the last two years that you really need to be concerned about.
1: And Les, the Consumer Reporting Agency or the CRA, that applies to anybody, no matter how simple the background is. I mean, it could be just going to the court and checking records, or it could be just verifying employment. It still applies, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, there could be an exception for someone who's merely a court runner, uh, and all they do is because it's clerical. That that becomes a little complicated. But any investigator, any background from anyone who assembles uh, a, a dossier on somebody... Uh, for a fee or as part of a third-party service. Uh, if, if you get paid to, by an employer for pre-employment purposes to process information, yes, yeah, so the, the FCRA uh, covers you very broadly. And by the way, some people take a look at the name and, and because the name of the law says "fair credit," and they think, "Well, uh-huh. it's only about credit reports," and could not be more wrong. Forget the word "credit." Uh, it, it, whether it's calling a school, verifying an employer, getting a court record, running a DMV, uh, and, and any one of a hundred other tools that, that employers might call upon us to do, uh, it's all about a being a consumer report. And as soon as it's a consumer report, that FCRA tripwire goes, and a whole bunch of rights come into play. And we see these in these lawsuits. People are getting sued. Uh, There's even a case now from the Supreme Court where under the FCRA, under the current law, uh, the Ninth Circuit, which is where we are here, uh, I'm sitting here in California, Mm -hmm. has basically ruled that someone can sue under a class action lawsuit for violation of FCRA, even if there's been no damage, just a statutory violation. And then, hold on to your seat, folks, and here's where it really gets exciting. Uh, particularly if you're in California, uh, under California law, you not only have the FCRA, but guess what? There's something called the ICRA, uh-huh. the Investigative Consumer Reporting Agencies Act, which is in the California Civil Code. And if you thought the FCRA was complicated, it's child's play compared to all the California rules. That's amazing. And so in California, there's a whole overlay of I's you got to dot and T's you got to cross, uh, some really technical stuff. And guess what? If you don't do it you can get what I refer to as a 10K letter. And the K, of course, stands for 1,000. You can get a letter from someone saying, hey, I wasn't hurt, I wasn't harmed, but your form didn't dot this I or cross this T. You violated the California rule. Uh, you owe me $10,000. The, the, st- that's the statutory penalty for violation yeah. uh, of the a, California process.
1: That's the strict liability provision.
2: Yeah, now it has been thoroughly tested, and, and there's also some court cases going on right now that is challenging the constitutionality of the California scheme. Don't know how that's going to come out. That could be a big news item uh, later this year or next. We don't know. But but currently there is a, um, a whole overlay of, of only-in-California uh, processes, and uh, maybe we'll have time certainly for the Cali webinar. We'll go over those in details. But but those are are uh, is pretty draconian and uh, uh, mm-hmm. not hard to do if you if you're, you if you do it all the time and of course a problem with with uh, what we find with PIs is that a private investigator is doing a lot of things and they got get called upon to do one background check if right. if they're not ready for bear if they haven't uh, gotten all their forms in order. And that's just a lawsuit waiting to happen. Just, you know, be ready to start signing out checks for $10,000 every time someone complains, uh, unless you've gone to a lawyer first and you have all your, all your ducks in a row. So it, it's an extremely complicated uh, uh, area. And, and the reason it's complicated because it involves people's livelihoods. Uh, and absolutely. so this, that's why it's gotten so regulated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned ban the box, Les. Would you briefly uh, talk about what that is?
2: Yeah. In addition to this whole uh, emphasis on the process by which background reports are done, which is the FCRA and each state has its own rules and California has its own rules, there's been a big emphasis in the last two or three years that we all really need to understand, which has to do with the fairness of using criminal records. Uh, part of that is the EEOC guidance of 2012 and uh which really is going to change what every employer in America hires. But part of that whole emphasis on criminal records and the accuracy of records and the fair use of records is this whole idea of ban the box. And and the box that's being banned, by the way, is kind of a uh, – people say, I'm sorry, what do we have against boxes? Well, <laughs> the, the box is being banned refers to the idea that historically on any job application or now – using applicant tracking systems, online services, there's a uh, somewhere at some point someone is asked, essentially, do you have a criminal record? And there's a box that says yes and a box that says no. And so ban the box is a shorthand way of saying, essentially, hey, folks, it's really important for everyone to get a job. There's a lot of people in this country with criminal records, right? Some estimate 60 or 70 million people have some sort of criminal record. If a criminal record becomes an automatic uh, barrier to even applying for the job, it becomes an early knockout punch. You could potentially have a lot of otherwise qualified people who need jobs, uh, who can't even get to the front door to present who they are. And their qualifications or abilities, and 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 try to convince the employers that they have the knowledge, skills, ability, education, and experience, despite whatever criminal record it may have occurred. And a criminal record could have been old, it could have been irrelevant. They they could have done great things since, but with the idea with the prejudice against criminal records that, that a lot of people employers might have, they can't even get to the front door to an even playing field. So uh-huh. ban the box started off as a movement, basically public entities who were concerned about the fact that they were spending more money on police and jails than they could for schools and and, uh, and, and, and and medical services because their budget was being eaten up by recidivists just going out, can't get a job, they go right back in, and it's now been expanded greatly. A number of states have banned the box. A lot of these states will apply it to private employers. Major employers, Coke Industries, Target, I think Walmart, have uh, agreed to drop the box so people can at least get in. Now, let me be clear. It doesn't mean that, for the most part, unless you happen to live in San Francisco, where there's a, which is ban the box on steroids, for the most <laughs> part, yeah, there's, and that's a different issue, but for the most part, ban the box simply delays the timing of the criminal's uh, question so that you at least have a fair shot to... Uh, to make your case for that job. At some point, an employer is going to ask about a relevant criminal record because you you have to exercise due diligence. So even though there's a job for everyone, not everyone is entitled to every job. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so you can still do a background check at some point. Now, San Francisco is an example of going too far to the point where we're actually seeing that ex-offenders are being hurt because San Francisco did this odd thing where they – it's, it's pretty technical, but the way the San Francisco Law ended up being written is that if you run a child care center or a battered woman shelter and you have 20 or more employees, you qualify. If a person got out of prison uh, yesterday and they were sentenced more than seven years and one day ago, as the manager of a battered woman shelter, you cannot know or inquire whether or not that person just got out of prison for rape or, or, or child molestation. Wow. Um, so it 's this very bizarrely Amazing. written law uh, that did not does not have any exceptions where it should i mean and there 's some logic to what they did. Logic was that old minor drug convictions could be hurting people, and so they they meant well, but they ended yeah. up drawing up a law that just uh, could actually end up having employers say and this is the trend that we 're afraid of employers might could eventually say you know criminal records are are now too regulated they' too complicated. There's band-the-boxes different in every city, state, and county. Instead of looking at criminal records, instead, let's just make sure that a person has an uninterrupted job history. And that might go. become the new way of keeping uh, the workplace yeah. safe by, by saying, yeah, a person is has been basically employed for the past 15 years, um, You know, maybe a week or two gap between jobs or whatever, but basically they're employed. That That might be the best indicator of safety because That's criminal a, records yeah. are now becoming too complicated and, and too risky to use. So
1: anyway, a there's a lot point. of moving parts here. Okay, well, we need to take a real quick break, Les, and Les Rosen will be right back. Just, just a couple moments.
0: need to hire a private investigator, ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Kelly Callie at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI.
1: Les Rosen is an attorney, a private investigator, and a nationally known expert on employment screening. So, Les, we're just talking offline off here. What's the difference between screening and background investigations?
2: Well, and that's a great question there. They're, they're first cousins, and a lot of uh, 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 investigators say, well, I, boy, someone's hiring someone. I, I can do that and uh what 's interesting is when you look at it uh, um, the the first problem of course is the the huge amount i mean the overwhelming amount of legal regulation when it comes to doing anything employment related but but basically a, a background screening firm i said it 's a two or three billion dollar industry uh, is in my view aren 't really investigators I mean a background firm is doing is, is it's large scale. We get hundreds or thousands of names every day. Uh, there's it, it's done on on a uh, computer uh, assembly line, all dependent on software. Uh, if calls have to be made, is being made to a school or to an employer that has where, where the applicant has already provided the school and the employer and the date. So it's confirmation really nothing investigative about it. There's no analysis. There's no in-depth research. Whereas a private investigator doing a background check, a private investigator involves a a focused uh, in-depth research and analysis on a particular target. So typically a PI with an assignment is really looking closely at one thing, one person, one item under a microscope, uh-huh. whereas background screeners are, are, as the name implies, screening. We're looking at large masses, groups of people. Kind of like in medicine, the difference between doing cholesterol screening, which is a $5 test, versus uh, open heart surgery, which is looking at whether one person's heart is having problems or not. I mean, sometimes that analogy makes sense. So uh-huh. so uh-huh. investigators, that when they get involved in and the screening world need to understand not only uh, is it a, a situation where there, it's regulated because there's employment involved, but the background screening companies are, are really logistic companies. Having said that, there are certain areas where I think only a private investigator should should be involved. So, uh, if when someone calls up a screening firm and wants a, a nanny checked boy, that really is something a PI should do. That can't be done by a public record check or someone earning you know, $10 an hour in a call center someplace. Or um, if there's workplace misconduct or wrongdoing uh, or there's a key executive, those are all things that really require the expertise and focus and ability of, of, of a qualified PI. Uh, background screeners, on the other hand, takes thousands of names a day and through a very complex process is is screening those names against obvious red flags, criminal records, it's all, I mean, it's all a business. It's an assembly line business. Uh-huh. Um, sure, sort of it like the difference between going to a, a big supermarket versus going to a gourmet store. So it's related but, but somewhat different. And, and the biggest part of that difference is the intense regulation uh, that, that you need to understand and follow when, when you are doing employment background screening.
1: And the biggest difference between what you're talking about, the assembly line process versus an investigation, is if you start um, interviewing people about a person's character or work performance. Would that be accurate?
2: Yeah, there's there's this odd thing, and this is something people who look at this say, well, under the FCR rate or something called an, an investigative consumer report, uh, an investigative consumer report really refers to actually dwelling into somebody. A uh, background firm, typically the most they'll ask is the person eligible for rehire. Uh-huh. Um, you know, sometimes there may be a few questions about did they show leadership, et cetera, et cetera. But employers don't really hire background firms to do that. A background firm, when they're called upon to verify employment, it's usually start date, end date, job title, maybe salary. So the, the the real difference is assembly line versus a, a focus on in-depth focus on one person uh, versus a a mechanized assembly line that's all software-based uh, that's it, it, done very quickly and cheaply.
1: And the um, the former that we were talking about, where you're getting more into the investigation, that would actually be, and at least in California, require a private investigator's license.
2: Oh no! Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, the, in California, the, the 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 code clearly lays out what's required in terms of doing a, a background check investigation of a person. So there's also reasons you might be doing background checks, but when it comes to pre-employment screening, uh-huh. which is verification of credentials and checking public records, those sort of things, um, generally. Uh, the economics of the thing is such that unless you specialize in it, given the huge legal risk and financial risk involved, um, uh, it, it becomes something to really think about. And like I said, these 10K letters are coming out fast and furious. People uh-huh. uh, are very informed, and and some of uh, a PI says, "Okay, well, I'll do this one uh, employment screening for a friend, and or someone I know, and and their forms aren't right. You could get you can expect to get a letter." And a demand for ten thousand uh, yeah. dollars for filling the dot and I across the T.
1: So people and, that and are I, listening from other states really ought to check their own laws regarding uh, employment screening before they take this on.
2: Exactly, I'm just picking on California because I happen to be sitting here today right. in the independent part right. of California. But but you know New York and Massachusetts, Washington, Oregon. I mean, there's a whole lot of states. Illinois. Whole bunch of states now. There aren't far behind in having their own set of rules and laws, and so it's becoming very uh, balkanized in a sense. You not only have the federal rules, but every single state. And we see that now with states passing. Number of states have their own rules regulating credit reports and background checks, or social media passwords. Uh, number of states are, uh, have or are passing their own mini FCRA. So Georgia. Uh, last year passed their own version of the FCRA. It's yet another state we need to uh, be involved with. Um, uh, so anyway, there's a lot happening. <laughs> it's a, a number of moving parts. Yeah. And so generally my observation is that you you either need to be in it all the way or out of it uh, because the the risk is too high that something can occur that you're just unaware of uh, mm-hmm. unless you just do it every day.
1: Mm-hmm. I Totally agree. <laughs> As I <laughs> mentioned offline uh, years ago, we used, our company used to do pre-employment screening and I wouldn't ever do it today. It's, it's way too uh, legal for me <laughs> to, get, <laughs> right. to get all those moving parts. It just sounds like a nightmare to me. But okay, so, so tell us about some of the recent laws that have been passed that affect this area.
2: Well, California it's just it's just never ending uh in terms of the uh the rules and regulations and they're always being tweaked and there's also always lawsuits. Um, you know, California has the ICRA that I mentioned, California also has uh other laws that um, that affect it as well. Uh in California there's just so many special little things you need to have. There's a special California checkbox rule about a free report. There's special uh rules for the content for the consent and disclosure uh, only in california and other states have, have their own peculiarities as well you have to have the name and address of your firm as well as the uh, phone number you have to have special language on the first page of the background report about the accuracy uh, you have to have some additional statements about the ability of people to ask questions about their reports uh, there's special rules about the employer certification under the fcra if you, an employer goes to a background firm you have to certify uh, to the background firm, what is your permissible purpose? Well, California has gone a step further uh, and says uh, that that the employer has to agree that their purpose changes, that they will tell the background firm. That's a pretty subtle change, and wow. unless you really understand this area, you may not have. So, and, and I can go on. There's special disclosures, special forms. Um, there's uh, when it comes to um, uh, offshoring of data, for example. A number of background firms really are doing their work in India or, or the Philippines. Uh there's some special rules about disclosure about doing that. Uh and Cali was able on the in in that law have a special Cali exception for uh, for investigators that don't have websites, but that is kind of an interesting little, right. little wiggle in law <laughs> that Kelly got through for its members. Yeah. Um, there's a, a a special rule about credit reports in California. There's uh Uh, There's a number of special rules about the uh, use of criminal records. In California, Is what's called a seven-year state. Uh, You can only report cases that go back seven years. The math and how you do that is very tricky. You need to be very careful about that. California is a no-arrest state. You can't report an arrest not resulting in a conviction. You can't report anything from a database uh, unless you've confirmed it from the primary source. as complete and up to date as the time that you reported it. Uh, you, there's all sorts of limitations on misdemeanors, and uh, uh, matter of fact, a law was passed uh, effective 2014 that, ex, that made uh, less than the number of, of crimes that were felonies, made them into misdemeanors. There's rules about um, reporting cases that have been set aside where there's been diversion, delayed entry of judgment. I spent a number of years as a a certified specialist in criminal law. That's all I did was live, breathe, and eat criminal law. And sometimes I look at these cases we need to report, and I have to scratch my head and call our attorney for a second opinion Uh because this is really complicated stuff. And, and again, I can't stress enough, these these 10K letters are going out there fast and furious, make one little mistake, and uh, someone will demand and be able to get from you $10,000, or you have to hire a lawyer and spend that much to defend yourself. No, you're going to end up owning at the end of the day anyway. So right. and,
1: it, and, you know, <laughs> a lot of these things you, you just mentioned, it seems like they always start in California. How widespread have they become across the country?
2: It, it has now become a cottage industry. There are um, a number, and I'm a lawyer myself, so I'm not uh, casting dispersions on lawyers. It's only 95% of lawyers that give the rest of us a bad name. But there are any number of lawyers all over the country who are driving really nice cars, uh, because uh, background firms, or investigators, or employers uh, got involved with this without really taking the time to uh, research and know it, so there are uh, an explosion of class action lawsuits and individual lawsuits as well, uh, and it's become the sort of the hot new, sexy area for plaintiffs' attorneys, um, so who are who are actively looking for targets. Um, and, and, and it's just, uh, there's a whole industry doing that now. People, uh, job seekers will go to various, uh, workers' assistance centers, and, and those folks, if they see a bad background report, an investigator or background from an employer didn't do it right, um, uh, it'll, it could easily find its way to an attorney and find its way to a lawsuit. And, and then really the reason is, the bottom line is that this whole area is regulated by litigation. Mm-hmm. So instead of government inspectors going out and making sure everyone's doing it right, um, plaintiffs' lawyers fill that role. And so it, this is sort of free enterprise regulation. And uh, people who do it right don't have anything to worry about, um, or, or less to worry about. Uh, it's the, the the people who don't pay attention or don't do it all the time are the ones that are at the highest risk of of you know, coming into the, um, the the hair sites of a uh, of a lawyer that specializes in this area.
1: Well, and you mentioned the, uh, let's go back to the offshore thing, because I think a lot of people would be very surprised to know that background checks are being sent offshore to places, like, to call centers like India and some of these other places where uh, our actual social security number and all our personal information is going to another country where, um, where we already have, not necessarily India, but we're already at risk with people uh, and identity theft.
2: Yeah, so identity theft is basically the is a three part tool: name, date of birth, social security number. With that, you can become anybody. You can go on Amazon get whatever you want for a while. <laughs> you, know, you can have, do all sorts of things. Right. And and that is those are the essential elements for a background check. I mean, we in order to perform a background check, any CRA uh, needs to know the person's name, date of birth, and social. Those are the essential ingredients. And so there are a number of firms, large firms who routinely do all this work offshore where you can hire well-educated labor at a you know fraction of what you have to pay here. And there's nothing illegal or wrong about that. It's a business practice. There are some firms that are multinational firms who operate offshore as well, so they may not mind. But it's just something to keep in mind that that is a practice that some firms do. Now, not every firm. There's a group called... Uh, concerned CRAs, dot dot com uh at least two hundred background firms may i think more by now have taken the pledge uh not to offshore uh data because the of the of the risk involved with sending personal data of, out outside of the protection of u s privacy laws uh-huh. and other firms take the position that well we we do a great job protecting privacy in in these in these third um uh, outside the United States, in these, in these uh, call centers outside of the U.S., and uh, uh, it's really up to the consumer. So there's no law against it, uh, but the California rule that that, uh, that was passed uh, was a sunshine rule. It simply said that on the consent form, uh, if a firm has a website, there has to be a link to the privacy policy, and the background firm has to have uh, on, on the front of their website in, in big distinguishable Characteristics, privacy policy, and in the privacy policy, the background firm needs to address that. And I think that's actually the first law in the country that that mm-hmm. dealt with uh, offshoring personal and private information. And it's not and, that there can't be data breaches in the U.S. as well, but at least if it happens right. here, you, you know, you, 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 it's closer to home. You, you have easier to do something about
1: it. And you were a primary driver on that bill, the uh, SB nine hundred nine. I think it was called, right. He, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I wrote it and got it through, and and and, and Cali was. Uh, was heavily involved and supportive as well. And and uh, there was, the, as I said, the Cali exception because some PIs may not have websites. So there was a workaround to accommodate uh, folks that do this type of work and they don't necessarily have a website uh, to accomplish everything. So it's just something to be aware of, particularly if you're an employer, the number of firms that uh, whether a firm sends that information beyond U.S. privacy laws to India for processing uh, nice. to make it cheaper and whether that has any advantage to you or not. And we're not Certainly, no suggestion by anyone that's wrong or bad or shouldn't be done. Uh, the firms that do it uh, tell me they, they undertake great uh, measures to ensure security, but it's just something something for the employer to decide whether they're comfortable with that or not.
1: Well, and but, for, as an individual, it's a cause for pause. Just to say, oh, that's interesting. This is going someplace else that I didn't know. I didn't know it was going over <laughs> offshore.
2: Some people find that scary, and and that's why uh-huh. there's this disclosure, and applicants may want to not, um, can choose not to apply to an employer that uh, uh, has a screening process where their information is going willy-nilly to, you know, God knows where, to uh, India or the Philippines or wherever else the information may be going. But it's all, it's all personal choice, so there's... Uh, Yeah, it's just a matter of what the employer, what the applicant feels comfortable with.
1: Okay. All right. Les, we do need to take one more commercial break. We'll be right back.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at CALI PI.org or call 1 800 350 CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the Council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified.
1: With us today is employment background expert Lester Rosen. Uh, Lester, let's talk about uh, credit checks because I think that's very confusing, and a lot of people have misunderstandings about it.
2: Well, the, the first misunderstanding that we see is occasionally you'll see a headline where some reporter says your credit score could impact employment. And the first thing that tells you is that whoever wrote that uh, had no idea what they're talking about. Right. <laughs> uh, so that's the first misunderstanding. Um, credit reports and employment are—it's—it's it's a hot topic because uh, there is so much concern about discrimination, the misuse of credit reports, and the relevancy of credit reports. So, a couple of basic things: a when a credit report is ordered from a background screening firm. Uh, That is a special type of employment credit report. It does not have a person's credit score. So uh, unless an employer is illegally accessing a credit reporting tool that they're supposed to have in order to make credit decisions and use it for employment, which they, of course, shouldn't do, um, a, a background firm provides a special credit report that does not have your credit score It doesn't have your date of birth because of age discrimination. It doesn't have actual account numbers. It doesn't count against you uh, in the sense that every time you apply for a new credit card, you get dinged. None of that that applies. It's a special Uh animal. It does, however, have what's called your credit history, and and that's where credit reports get criticized because the credit history will tell an employer if you pay your bills on time, how much you have outstanding, uh, if you shop for shoes at Payless or if you shop at Nordstrom's. So credit reports really start to invade this zone of privacy. It kind of has a, uh-huh. of, all, of all the reports of tools that are used, criminal records, where you went to school, driving records, where those are all things you've done in the public. But a credit report really starts to get closer to home and there's this feeling of an invasion of privacy. So employers are, are really well advised to use credit reports, a lot of caution, because there's no credit score. And so the problem is, what are you getting from the credit report that is helping you make an employment decision? So it's always a seat-of-the-pants judgment. Uh-huh. And some employers tell us, well, they look at debt-to-income ratio, the idea being that if we're going to pay you 5000 a month and you have access to cash assets or fiduciary decisions. And and but you have a recurring monthly debt of ten thousand a month, then we are concerned that potentially you're underwater. And embezzlement being a crime of motive, opportunity, and means, you might have the motive to steal. So that argument's made. Of course, how stupid would an employer look if uh, they hire an embezzler? And a credit report would have shown that. So so the arguments go back and forth. And and the way it, it generally works out in the real world is, first of all, there's been, been some ten states, including California that in various ways have passed laws that basically say if you're gonna run a credit report, number one, you gotta tell the applicant you're running it, and number two, you need to explain why you're running it. In other words, you have to look, is there a nexus between the credit report and the job? Uh-huh. And, and what we really see happening is that most employers understand that credit reports are pain of the neck, are highly regulated. To even get a credit report, you have to jump through hoops uh, before a background firm can even get a, provide you the credit reports. They have to do a special independent vetting, including an on-site uh, review of your premises. So it's it's a highly protected tool. The credit bureaus want to make sure no one's misusing it. Correct. And, and so what we see generally is that there's there's even surveys by SHRM, Society of Resource Management, to suggest that credit reports are widely used, but they're are used widely, but not widely used. That is, a lot of firms will have access to them, but they'll restrict their use, to where it really makes sense, primarily somebody who is um, you know, handling money or cash and, and large amounts of money or, uh-huh. or maybe doing IT. I mean, even if you have a, a you know $10 an hour cashier, do you really need a credit report? If you have right. uh, proper internal controls, yeah. And you'll count the cash towards the end of the day. If something's missing, you'll know by 5 o'clock. Uh, you don't really need to run a credit report. So there, there's a lot of back and forth in this. The EEOC has been concerned about it. Uh, because credit scores could theoretically be a cause of, of what's called disparate impact, a type of unintentional but statistically significant discrimination. Uh, so it's, it's an area where we tell employers, if you really want a credit report, number, number one, I understand there's a lot of hoops to jump through because our credit bureaus want to make sure these are being used fairly. And number two, let's have some procedures in place that you're using the credit reports fairly you're ensuring that there's accuracy. Remember, there's something called adverse action notice. You know, if you refinance your house for a month or two, your credit report could show two house payments, and there's only really one. Uh-huh. Or you may have been unemployed for a couple months, and your child ran up huge medical bills. Well, of course, you're going to run, you're going to use your credit card to pay those. And so, or a person has been unemployed and they were using their credit card for a couple of years. So you got to be really careful about the use of credit reports. That's why I think they're pretty controversial. Uh, a lot of employers are using them less and less just because of the, all the complications surrounding them.
1: Well, um, and they became even more controversial since 2008 and the downturn of the economy. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people were affected that wouldn't have been otherwise.
2: You no, know, exactly. And if, and if you don't have a job and you, and you have to, and you have a child that's sick, as a classic example, mm-hmm. of course you're going to rent your credit cards to take care of your child. And then if an employer is looking at you, uh, you, you have a high credit balance during a time of unemployment, and so the the better practice is to not look at understand that type of history. And what we find is most employers th- that when they, by the time they run a credit report, it 's also important to keep in mind that you 're only doing background checks on people you want to hire. Employers uh-huh. are not doing credit reports in order to unfairly eliminate people from the job. I mean employers not paying for a background check unnecessarily. And so they right. want to hire you. And so if a person does have a problem with their credit, honesty being the best policy is let the employer know what the situation was because they're, they're going to want to focus on how to get you hired, how not to hire you.
1: And actually what happened in, when that particular bill passed in California, uh, AB 22 I think it was, a couple, hmm. of three years ago, that was the argument they used is that people – For entry-level jobs, were getting eliminated right off the top because of credit reports, and of course that was not happening. I mean, nobody was running credit credit reports on entry-level employees. Oh, exactly.
2: Yeah, it's not worth the time or effort, and you don't hire and you don't run the credit reports until after they're almost hired, uh, unless you're interested in them. And and the California law is again only in California. The California law was written in a way that the law really has no significance. The, The exceptions to when you can run a credit report are so broad that the exceptions eat up the rule. So, um, again, a well-meaning law uh, that would have benefited by some real-world expertise. Yeah,
1: but anyway, right. But so it right. <laughs> okay. So um, anything else about credit reports you think you should impart?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's something to be careful about, and uh, we, we actually try to tell employers um, – why do you want these? Do you really need them? What are you expecting to find off them? Uh, You'll have some old-school uh, employers who just are used to running them, so they run it automatically. Uh, but uh, it's just an area that it's all cost-benefit. You know, what do you think the benefit will be? Given Keeping in mind that it is pretty clear that EEOC is concerned about, Equal Opportunity Employment Commission is concerned about current reports being used unfairly. And so we, we tell employers, if you really need it, you know, let's let's articulate how and how you're going to use them, or you're going to use them for, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not to use them willy nilly. So it's yeah. just it's an area to watch out for. Um, given the uh, current climate, one could predict that in a few years, credit reports will become sort of a disfavor tool, uh, and employers will need to look for other ways of uh, of assessing risks.
1: Okay. All right. So um, you mentioned EEOC. What kinds of things that does the EEOC get involved in?
2: Well, the really big ticket item now for employers, human resources, and then, of course, for anyone who does background checks is the EEOC has jumped into this area of the use of criminal records for employment with, with both feet and a great big stick and a big litigation budget. And um, really important to be aware that the EEOC on April 25, 2012, issued a new guidance on these criminal records. There, there's always been and basically, since 1988, the EEOC guidance on, the, on criminal records, the idea being that criminal records should not be used to automatically disqualify someone from employment. Uh, but there's a lot of new emphasis there, and the EEOC is bringing lawsuits on this. Um, there's, there's a lot of activity. And, and the EEOC has not uh, fared that well in the initial lawsuits, but that's just the way um, laws and rules develop. And, and the EEOC is certainly committed uh, to erasing uh, discrimination as a, uh, uh, from, from impacting people trying to get uh, uh, employed. And so the, the big-ticket item when it comes to the, to the EEOC uh, is the EEOC is, is really concerned about uh, this idea, and this is a key term, I'm not going to use too much law here, but disparate impact is a term you need to know and understand. And, and the, the whole idea is that we live in a country where if criminal records are used automatically without regard to anything else, in other words, we don't subject a criminal record finding to any other analysis, there's some pretty startling statistics out there. Uh, and and here's, here's some of them. It turns out that in our society in the United States that if a person is a white male, their chance of being behind bars in their lifetime is one out of 17. For a Hispanic male, the chances are one out of six, and for a black male, one out of three. Amazing. And those statistics statistics like that tell us that if criminal records uh, are used, and although on their face you would think, well, a criminal record is neutral, criminal record doesn't tell you anything about a person's race, creed, color, ethnicity, nationality. The, the problem with criminal records, if they're used willy nilly without any other test involved, the, the impact ends up creating, arguably, creating a statistical impact called the disparate impact on, on people protected by Title VII, the Civil Rights Act. And, and that's why the EEOC has been concerned for a long time about the use of criminal records and that they be used fairly. And by fairly, we broadly mean that, that, that the criminal record has to have some relationship to the job or, or there be some business necessity. That justifies the criminal record being used to eliminate someone from the job. So the EEOC is concerned about the accuracy of criminal records. Uh, accuracy generally, accuracy issues come from the use of databases uh-huh. uh, that, that aren't vetted with uh, as of the current status. And they're concerned about fairness. and And that's why uh, anyone involved with background checks as a uh, who uses reports or reports needs to understand. Uh, that the EEOC is now, and that's related to the ban the box. That's a big ticket item. Uh, this idea that you cannot automatically disqualify someone just because they have a criminal record, without taking a look at the nature of the criminal record, the, the what they've done since, what the job involves, how old the criminal record is, whether the criminal record is relevant. So there's a. a um, a rather large body of information that uh, anyone involved in this area really needs to understand, uh, if they're in the business of of providing analyzing or using criminal records and employment, because this is a, 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 you know, a real seismic change in our society, uh, the way these things work now.
1: Yeah. And this is particularly relevant since all the people are being released from prison, uh, on early release. So, Um, You know, Les, we're out of time, and uh, my goodness, there's so much to talk about, and let me just again mention that California Association of Licensed Investigators is going to be hosting Les Rosen on a seminar August 26th. I don't have the time. It's uh, about a 90-minute seminar, and if you're interested, log on to the Cali website, cali-pi.org, and there'll be more information coming. Les. As always, thank you for taking your time to share your knowledge. You are such a fountain of valuable information. (laughs) Uh, It's just really amazing (laughs) to talk to you. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) Uh, And and and, I always
2: love listening to the Peter Gunn themes.
1: That's my favorite radio show. Oh, thank you. So, folks, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Les. Nice talking to you.
2: Thank you.